Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're talking about Wes Anderson's new film Isle of Dogs and the BBC adaptation of Ordeal by Innocence. We've also listened to the title of the creator album Flower Boy for the first time, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. I'm in such a good mood today just because the sun's come out in London. It just makes my life so much better. I know. Don't you find that you persist all through the winter and then into the bedraggled early grey bits of spring and you're like, oh, maybe I maybe I need to go to the doctor. Like, yeah, maybe there's totally. something wrong with me. Yeah. And then the first sunny day, you're like, oh, no, actually, I'm fine. I'm totally it's just fine. the weather. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> fine yes. now. Yeah, that's how I feel. I'm also currently accepting applications for my summer crush. Right, sure. Only requirements must be handsome and boring enough for me to project all my fantasies onto. <laughs> Total unavailability also required. Applications being ta- accepted until, I don't know, May. Because we really need it. We need it locked down for the whole summer. So Okay. So I've just been kind of like reading a bit of my book here and there. and having a quite jolly old time of it, actually. Mm, yeah I'm really really hoping that this weather is going to stay and that now it's just plain sailing into the summer I demand summer no take backsies <laughs> yes because I'm also ready for the kind of pop culture that goes with it being nearly summer as well mm. I'm through with you know films with serious heavy subjects please give me ones with loud bangs in now yeah okay. <laughs> So last week we talked about Hamilton because we both actually have seen it in London now, which was a great fun episode to do. And we've had some really lovely listener feedback. So we're going to read a couple of emails about Hamilton. Catherine got in touch with us to say she's listening to the Hamilton special right now and I'm loving it. And then she says, you discuss how neither of you knew that John Lawrence dies, which was actually an intentional choice by Lin-Manuel Miranda. He grew up listening to cast recordings and loved when there was a withheld moment that was a surprise to someone who knew the recording by memory. And she links to a Tumblr post where Lin-Manuel Miranda is basically like, here is the scene from Hamilton in which Lawrence dies. And this is the only, quote, scene in Hamilton because Mm. everything else happens via song rather than via dialogue. And he says, as someone who grew up only listening to cast albums, those withheld moments were revelations to me when I finally experienced them on stage years later. 
Hamilton is sung through and I wanted to have at least one revelation in store for you. I stand by the decision and I think the album is better for it. Please understand that the reason that I left this scene off the album is precisely because I value it and Lauren's so much. Which is great. So we weren't yeah. totally stupid. I was like, we're just so dumb. <laughs> yeah, but also it's so interesting that he deliberately did it as like a kind of Easter egg for seeing it live mm. in theatre. Mm. But then also, I think he's right that if you had that like spoken word scene on the album, it would feel like I would just find myself skipping it all the time. In the same way that I do with the Hamilton mixtape album, I skip the stupid Jimmy Fallon track every time. <laughs> like almost like a reflex because I no one needs that. No one needs that. Yeah, I did really experience that as a new emotion in the theatre mm. as well, which obviously with a lot of it, you don't because you know every twist and turn that's happening. And like the sort of little extra jokes that are all based on physicality, it was so fun to see that because it was, well, not fun because I was really sad because I was like, no, my fave. <laughs> but yeah, great. So thank you, Catherine, to give us a little bit of extra context there. We've also heard from Eric who actually got in touch via our website. I sort of forgot that I put a contact form on there, but I'm glad that it still works. And he says, regarding Hamilton, I wonder if the problem you had with the ending was the fault of the actress playing Eliza. I saw Philippa Sue in the show when it opened in New York and her performance was so subtle. In fact, I saw her years earlier in the off-Broadway production of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. And when I saw the Broadway version of that show without her, I realised how much she grounded the role of Natasha because her Broadway replacement was overdoing everything. I think Eliza is a similar type of role that's more complex and challenging than people realise. I really agreed with this Mm. interpretation, I think, because just to recap for people who maybe didn't hear it, if we had a criticism of the London production of Hamilton at all, it was the fact that the ending was quite overwrought. Mm. Particularly, there's this one bit where Eliza goes, the orphanage, in a really sort of operatic way which was the subject heading of eric's email (laughs) yeah and we (laughs) just found that really silly and slightly like put a dampener on my weeping at the end really because it made me laugh so yeah i I do think that it's much more to do with the performance than the writing because i think perhaps in a different actor's hands i don't know though the orphanage as a line is just i mean the orphanage I don't know. For me, it's just the idea that it's like, by the way, if this wasn't sad enough, let's th- chuck some orphans in the mix. <laughs> but it is literally what happened. Like she did I, find I an orphanage. I know, but <laughs> so, you know, what is history? What is truth? I also really appreciate Eric just getting in there that he saw the show when it opened in New York, brackets, where I live. Look at yes. Eric going to see Hamilton when it opened. All right, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get Bully you. for you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much for all the Hamilton emails what a great fun episode of seriously to do so the first thing we're going to talk about this week is i love dogs which is a stop-motion animated film directed by wes anderson and set in a dystopian near future japan it follows the adventures of a group of dogs exiled to an island made of trash after an epidemic of dog flu breaks out Brian Cranston, Greta Gerwig, Bill Murray and Francis McDormand lead the cast of voice actors. Yeah, so it's quite a Wes Anderson-ish premise, I think. The idea of this island where all the dogs are forced to live amongst the garbage with no cure for their supposedly aggressive and infectious disease that they have. And I think even the, the title sounding a bit like I love dogs, mm-hmm. you'll already feel like you're fully in like, ooh, sprightly, effervescent, quirky Wes Anderson mode. 
And then the plot is actually surprisingly complex. It's not like a simple, like, fantastic Mr. Fox style, the farmer's out to get the fox style plot line. There's a lot of weird political stuff that Wes Anderson has weaved into this story. Yeah, there is, because as you go through the film, the the mayor of the city that the dogs have been exiled for undergoes a bit of a sort of journey in that you may think at the start that he's taking the the right decision to exile the diseased dogs to save the human population and then it gradually you start to question whether maybe actually he just hates dogs and that (laughs) he's cooked up this whole thing in order to get rid of dogs and there are a few like comic moments that tease that out but yeah it's not straightforward the goodies and baddies move around a bit it's not clear who's who all the time yeah and some of the dog characters also go on personal journeys as well one thing that's interesting is that the dogs speak English. Mm-hmm. You know, there it says some, there's a note at the beginning of the film that says something like, "All barks have been translated into English, but Japanese remains yeah. in Japanese, and it's subtitled." And you or you get like Francis McDormand verbally translating for like a supposed American English audience watching a political rally, things like that. Yeah, she plays the interpreter, essentially. So whenever, because quite a lot of the exposition is done via news reports or like filmed transmissions of speeches or rallies. And she's the like interpreter for that. So yeah, the way he gets across the like people and dogs can't understand each other is to have them speak two different human languages rather than there being any barking. Apart from in the case of the character called the little pilot and his guard dog, Mm-hmm. Because they have these little earpieces that they wear and they seem to be able to talk to each other through those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very beautifully designed, this film, isn't it? Like all the stop motion looks amazing. Even the trash mm. island looks, you know, beautiful in its way, even though it's a very kind of like grim, almost dystopian landscape. And then it's kind of like interweaved with all these references to Japanese art and like 1960s Japanese poster style and right back to very traditional art influences. Mm. And it's kind of like this big melting pot of different aesthetic references. And I really enjoyed looking at it. And I enjoyed, you know, some of the kind of like quirks that of like split screen and stuff like that, that he uses kind of halfway through. But for me, the storyline was like a little bit boring. (laughs) (laughs) And I think one thing I struggled with is that the five lead dogs, like what a great opportunity, five stop animation dogs to like really bring some kind of like weirdness and personality into the film. And all five of those dogs are like really boring, interchangeable men. And they've all got names like, you know, boss and king and, and then they're all kind of like fairly wholesome, all American boys that's everyone's vibe apart from the Brian Cranston lead dog is like a little bit more um edgy grumpy and what's that word beginning with m that means grumpy i always forget misanthropic yeah misan- yeah exactly for me like i was i just felt like that was a bit of a wasted opportunity because we get a few other dogs coming in who suddenly are like oh wow this is what this film could have been so there's a tilda swinton pug a pug voiced by <laughs> T- Tilda Swinton called Oracle, who is, quote, like, has visions because she basically watches old TVs. But they think this that her watching these TVs is her having, like, a weird vision. And she's just such a comedy, pint-sized, brilliant little side character in the film. And I'm like, oh, 
all of the dogs could have had this mm. sort of energy yeah, and this sort of presence. They all could have had presence. personalities. Yeah, and instead they don't. And even the Scarlett Johansson girl dog, her like character is like Smurfette. She's like, mm-hmm. I'm the girl dog, so I've like got a higher voice and nicer fur. And that's <laughs> and you're it. like, yeah, cool. That's fun. I feel like the same thing with the human characters is that they're kind of like playing roles rather than like being interesting characters. So you have loyal kid looking for his dog. And then you have like student protester and Mm. then you have like devoted scientist and then you have power hungry mayor. And those are like the other characters in the film and they're not actual. I mean, I know it's a lot to ask in an animated film that's kind of silly and about one dog's journey to, to find his master or whatever. But I kind of wanted more from all of those parts because they just felt yeah. a bit flat to me. I also think it is totally possible as we've seen in films like Up and Inside Out. And even Fantastic you know, Mr. Fox. Yeah. Like he, he was he can films have great characters. Yeah. So yeah, I know there's been a fair amount of chat of people saying that this film doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Oh really? Even though it's like a stop motion animated film about, <laughs> about dogs. dogs. <laughs> um, and it's true it doesn't because the, there's barely any female characters in it, and they really only have like flirty scenes with male dogs. Um, and, that's, <laughs> and that's it. I Don't mean, you just you, feel like an idiot for criticizing things like yes, that? But I it is also annoying. Do. But it is also annoying, yeah. and it's annoying partly because of like gender roles but it's also annoying because it's really just a function of the fact that quite a lot of the characters are quite similar yeah and don't really even as you say like I I don't think I would have really noticed if the main five lead pack dogs had actually had variety and distinct personalities like when I looked at the cast list I was like wow Jeff Goldblum was in this even though they've got some incredible voice actors playing those lead lead yeah. dogs i barely really registered who was voicing exactly them because what they had to say was just so generic and it just felt quite interchangeable and like lots of it there's kind of like funny jokes like i would laugh when you know the dogs were making little kind of like coded references mm. to what it might actually be like to like be in love as a dog like that you know there's all these kind of quips about like oh the, the dogs i like are never in heat or whatever <laughs> but beyond that it's kind of like it's not really doing anything interesting one thing we should talk about is that there's been lots of discussion about cultural appropriation Mm, in regards to the way that Wes Anderson treats Japanese culture in this film and whether it's basically like orientalism and I've read loads of good stuff on this on the internet and we'll put some links in the show notes but I wanted to shout out to Simran who's been on this show before Simran Hans who's a film critic for The Observer and other places And she wrote a really great piece for Reverse Shot about this. And she said, Not all of the film's evocations of Japan translate as benign. Repeated images of cotton wool mushroom cloud explosions conjure the American World War II bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Elsewhere, peas of green wasabi paste are repurposed as poison, a joke about deadly foreign fare that feels like low-hanging fruit. This pick and mix of cultural signifiers half-heartedly introduces a series of coded ideas about, quote, Japanese-ness that the film has no interest in actually engaging with, which I thought was sort of a a good summation of yeah. how Japanese culture really works in the film. It's kind of like a thing to look at and point it's a, at. It's absolutely a spectacle, but mm. nothing else. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I think she's bang on with that. And it actually weirdly reminded me a little bit of, I don't know if you've ever played the video game Bioshock. No. Well, Bioshock is set in this kind of steampunk city state, which 
is just a it's not based on i don't think it's not obviously based on any one cult like existing culture it's just a kind of mashup created of lots and lots of different things that mm. the writers have imagined and it's but it's used in exactly the same way as like a spectacle for you to walk around and see but you don't really necessarily have to engage with what it's about or what its ideas are and that's fine in a video game when it's just totally made up but I really didn't like feeling that I was watching a film that was doing that same thing with a real culture yeah um, I was like why this is almost like a background in a video game apart from mm-hmm. this is like real people's ideas and identities that is being done it's funny because I feel like a lot of the defences of this are like, you know, it's just a setting. Why does he have to set his film in in America? Well, like, you know, he's just set his film in Japan. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you're talking about someone like Wes Anderson, where how things look and the visuals are like actually the substance of his mm. films, you can't just dismiss it as just like the decoration for the and film, also, right? I tried to suspend judgment because while I was watching it I you know like Simran says I was seeing the mushroom clouds and being like "Mm." um Mm. but I was like I'm just going to suspend judgment until until I see the credits because if I see that Wes Anderson's is the only western name involved in making this film I'll go fair play yeah but it's not like literally there's almost well not that you want to make too many judgments based just on names but from what I could tell there are almost no Japanese people involved no, in making this film. One of the producers is Japanese and, you know, in a lot of interviews, Wes Anderson has really credited him with being extremely important to mm. how they developed their ideas about Japan and, you know, being really important in whether or not to translate and all of this kind of stuff. But one Japanese name doesn't necessarily feel like enough. Again, you don't want to do things based on like quotas mm. and and stuff like that because it just gets silly. But something felt a little bit off about it. Like the wasabi paste is a good example where wasabi paste is poison and it feels very much like a kind of American's joke of what wasabi is. <laughs> it's not sort of really based in any reality. And Simran at the end of her piece, I think has quite a damning line where she says, Given the painstaking intricacies and aesthetic inflexibility of Anderson's imagined worlds, it would be naive to write off this uneasy detail as an oversight or even less likely as a design flaw. Yeah, there's nothing unintended in his films, is there? Like Everything he does is very, very intentional and deliberate. So yeah, you can't really excuse it on that basis. Yeah, but anyway, I'd love to hear seriously listeners' thoughts about Isle of Dogs, whether they enjoyed it, whether they thought it was guilty of any cultural appropriation sins or whether that's taking it all a bit too seriously <laughs> um, <laughs> pun that's intended yeah <laughs> yeah so do email in with your thoughts hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The next thing we're going to talk about is Ordeal by Innocence, a BBC adaptation of the 1958 novel of the same name by Agatha Christie. It focuses on the aftermath of the murder of Rachel Argyle, played by Anna Chancellor, the adopted mother of five children. One of them, Jack, has died in prison after being accused of her murder, yet on the eve of their father's remarriage, a man turns up claiming to be Jack's alibi. Now, if you're a seriously listener, you will probably know a lot about the context of this adaptation so this was originally meant to air in christmas 2017 as they have done every year for the last three years i want to say the bbc have put on an agatha christie adaptation over the christmas period and because of the allegations surrounding ed westwick this was pulled originally but they actually refilmed ed westwick's character's part he was replaced by christian cook so having reshot his scenes, it's now ready to air. Uh, and it's started over the Easter break and they're doing one a week, which has also been controversial because BBC viewers are so used to having their Agatha Christie. <laughs> this is like one of the most British things of all time. British audiences complain that their Agatha Christie adaptation, is, each episode <laughs> is too far apart in time. They want it all at once. Yes, because often they do, I think with, and then there were none and stuff, they did them on like consecutive nights between Christmas and New Year. I saw an amazing article in the Telegraph that managed to spin this as a like generational war (laughs) thing, thing like old people are happy to have TVB on one episode per week, just like in the good old days. Millennials are frustrated because it is not all I wonder what the millennial audience (laughs) for this show is. I'm sorry, but I think it's pretty like middle-aged person's watching anyway yeah and i don't think it's that big a deal to be honest you know it's a tradition to have the agatha christie come three days apart and so i was kind of also like oh with a murder mystery you kind of want to binge it but yeah my Mm. boyfriend floated the theory that because they were still in post-production trying to seamlessly re-edit ed westwick's part they couldn't (laughs) do it in consecutive days and i burst his bubble by being like look i can watch all the episodes now they're all on bbc previews (laughs) they're ready they're just that's just how they've (laughs) literally decided to schedule it i read a feature about the whole process in the times over easter and they did it all i think they they reshot the whole thing in 10 days and obviously they didn't have to Mm -hmm. reshoot most of it They, they could keep any of the scenes and any of the angles that ed westwick wasn't in they just had to insert christian cook into the scenes but because he plays mickey argyle who's one of the siblings whose mother was 
supposedly murdered by their brother he either Mm. speaks or is in a lot of the scenes even if he's just like standing Mm. in the background while his siblings are talking so they did have to i think reassemble the whole cast which includes bill nye Mm. as well as anna chancellor god that must have been expensive eh? yeah so it's very interesting because i was i was thinking about this and i feel like even five years ago they wouldn't have bothered no they would have just shown it and like brassed out the controversy totally but it's you know me too and time's up and all of that have made it unacceptable which i think is a really positive change yeah it's a really it's a development that suggests at least some form of progress so that's good however you look at it so yeah i watched the first episode of this i haven't watched the second two i'm waiting for them to air properly i'm not not previewing them and I don't know the book. I think you do know the book. Yes. It, interestingly, it's one of two of her novels that Agatha Christie personally said were her favourites that she ever, she'd ever written. Oh, that's um, nice. Which is interesting, I think, because I can't remember what happens in Crooked House, but this one certainly, there's. it's not a spoiler to say that there's no like recognisable detective. It's one of her sort of ensemble psychological ones. Yeah, it's interesting. And they've both been adapted this year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I spent quite a lot of time watching this episode trying to look for cracks in the shots where you could see (laughs) that Ed Westwick should have been there or is that actually the back of Ed Westwick's head or blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't find any. They've done it very convincingly, I think. They have, yeah. Kristen Cook was quoted in this piece I read in The Times as saying that when, because I think the interviewer asked him, like, how do you feel about being... Mm. like stepping into dead man's shoes Symbolic, essentially yeah. and obviously because it's called ordeal by innocence and all the rest of it it just gives a and i don't think edward westwick has actually been convicted of anything although anything been no not at all lots of allegations etc etc and christian cook just said you know i just said to the director that very happy to step in but i'm not going to do an imitation of him i'm mm. going to act it and block it in my way as long as you're happy to work around that and I'm going to do the character my way. And then he also responded to the charge that that I've seen some people say that like, isn't it a bit of a, a kind of betrayal to, you know, allow this thing to, to actually be aired. Mm. And he was like, well, it's actually a it's a job. And also a lot of people work very hard on it, yeah. both the other actors and people behind the camera, etc. And if I didn't, or if somebody didn't, it probably wouldn't have ever been aired mm. and their work would never actually be seen by anyone so yeah that, that was interesting just to uh, but again I feel a little bit sorry for the BBC and for the writer Sarah Phelps because you know we've just spent like the first five minutes yeah, of our discussion talking about, talking about this yeah, exactly. um, so just to focus briefly on what we actually thought of the adaptation I don't like it very much. Mm. Tell me your problems with it. My problems with it are the excessive use of slow motion and <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Did you not like No. God, every time they do a like flashbacky bit, which is a lot. Yeah, you're totally right. I there's see it a now. like really dreamy sort of weird eerie music and that's fine. Like a little bit of use of that can be very effective, but my husband and I were watching it and we were like this is absurd. Every five minutes this happens, if not more. Mm, mm. Um, also, and again, I don't know if this is a because of the way it was written or the way it's been shot, but for the first 15 minutes or so, I think it's pretty impossible to understand what's happening. Yeah, I found it pretty confusing at the beginning. There are a lot of characters, because I say the setup is that the adopted mother of five siblings has been murdered. They're all grown up and they've sort of all come back for their father's new wedding for his remarriage so there's just like a lot of 
young, attractive people about and you don't really know who they are. And they keep throwing out names like, and the fact oh, that well, they're all adopted means there could be sexual tensions between them. Yeah, all so, brother and so sister you can't even and- use that. To, and also like they have different races and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. you can't tell. It's like, is that the housekeeper? Is that her sister? Someone keeps saying like, she Hester's doing this. Who's this? Ado- it took me ages and in fact, it, it, my boyfriend who has read the book was like, at one point I was asking all these questions. He was like, no, no, they're all adopted. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wait, what? I thought just the two that we saw being welcomed into the home as children were adopted and the rest were like biological. And he was like, no, 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 they're all adopted. So I don't know if I even would have got that had he not been there. Yeah. So I really felt like there wasn't a lot of help for the viewer mm. to get into it. And as a result, I think you spend quite a lot of the first episode feeling confused and not a lot enjoying the actual plot. Yeah. Um, So those were my main two problems with it. It's also done the classic thing of just making everyone absolutely, totally unlikable. Yeah. And really playing that up loads, which is fine, you know, that I don't have any problem with that, but it kind of gets a bit tiresome after a while when you see so many that do that. Uh, Also, I'm like, okay, so the law of most famous person is always the murderer suggests that either bill nye who so far has just been like the only one who's not reprehensible is the murderer or matthew good who always plays a total fucking psychopath um <laughs> is the murderer and he was in um downton abbey yeah he was actually remember, and he wasn't it's so a psych- funny he wasn't he, a psychopath in that but i kept waiting for him to become one yeah He's really weird because he's one of those actors who's like actually super famous and has been in like really big movies and mm. has like been like the lead in big movies. And then he's also just like on ITV sometimes and you're like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> Matthew Good? <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> um, but quite regularly. Mm. But it's funny. Yeah. So I don't know the solution. So and don't spoil me. So I might be totally wrong there. But already I'm a bit like I feel like I can see sort of where this is going I would like to shout out to Anthony Boyle, who we last saw on stage in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. He <laughs> plays Jack, the dead and accused son. I just like to see him in things. I also saw him in Come Home, which is currently on BBC. Mm. And he's a great little actor. And I'm glad that he's got more roles off the back of the Cursed Child because he was the, by far the best person acting wise in that. I think in other ways... This is a fairly typical adaptation in that, you know, it's set in a really bleak, remote country house. When is it set as well? Because it it seems later than an actual Agatha Christie. It is. So it was because, you know, she actually lived a really long time, Agatha Christie. Mm. This was first published in 58. And I think it's meant to be set like early 50s, maybe. Um, Because there's in the adaptation, there's a little bit of like Cold War reference mm. at one point someone yeah um, they're talking about career and stuff aren't they yeah and there's like career and there's you know what to do in the event of nuclear fallout mm. on the radio that kind of thing and the so, dresses which is obviously where i yeah get all my period references from because i don't understand politics but hello sweetheart neckline <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> uh so yeah it's it's definitely it's not set in like the 30s or 40s which is maybe what you expect mm, from, totally from an agatha christie matthew good's character was wounded and is in a wheelchair after serving during the Second World War. So it's definitely mm. post-1945. Already some sort of very questionable, potentially ableist quirks mm-hmm. in his character, where he's like kind of, you know, bitter as a result of his injuries and is like super evil and like uses the wheelchair as like to play the victim when he's caught out being a villain. And 
um, which is just kind of the classic tropes of the disabled villain in in all um, mm. culture. But I will keep watching it. I'm looking forward to, you know, I love a juicy Agatha Christie adaptation. I'll sit there, watch it with my big bowl of pasta. Dream <laughs> Sunday night, isn't it? Yeah, it fulfills that really, really well. I'm not sure, though, that it's necessarily much more than that. Like, I don't mm. think it's going to survive as like one of the great Christie adaptations. So now it's time for the part of the show where we talk about a listener recommend. We've had a listener recommend and we have taken that recommendation. Caroline, do you have the email to hand? I do. So this was from Jonathan, who is actually a long-time listener to the show and says that this is his second email. He got in touch around this time two years ago when he was shuttling between a master's degree in London and his boyfriend in Paris. And there was a lot of train journeys, a lot of podcasts. He said, you read out bits of my letter and said my trips on the Eurostar sounded glamorous, much to my Mm -hmm. friend's amusement. Mm, I do (laughs) Um, remember that. I do still think it's glamorous, Jonathan. I don't care if it's funny. But anyway, so he's been listening all that time. So thank you very much for that. And and I also like that he prefaces his recommendations with mine are all a bit queer, oh, <laughs> which good. is good. Specifically, he says, finally, I want to recommend Tyler, the creator's album Flower Boy, which was my album of the year last year. All I knew about him before was that he'd been banned from the UK by Theresa May when she was home secretary for some homophobic lyrics. Yeah, exactly. That's what I remember. That Same. Um, next thing you know, he comes out with this album Far beyond the fact that it warms my heart to hear a rapper rapping about love for other men, it's exactly the kind of hip-hop I love. Joyful, melodic, soulful. As much of a genius as Frank Ocean, only he takes himself less seriously, and you'd much rather go for a pint with him than Frank. (laughs) Oh, wow. He's done our job for us really well there. That's a great summation of this album. Yeah, and also really nicely, he says, um, I wish I'd had role models like them when I was growing up as a black gay boy in South London. Um, So I'm very pleased that you know, it gives you that feeling. That's very yeah, nice. Yeah, and that he's filling that space. Yeah, I think a lot of what Jonathan said there, I agree with. Like, I was blown away by this album this week. I'd not listened to it at all before. And like him, my only knowledge of Tyler was the Theresa May thing. When I first like opened this up on Spotify and I saw the list of people who'd collaborated on it, I was like, I think I'm going to like this because it has Frank yeah. Ocean, ASAP Rocky, Anna of the North, Jaden Smith, and a load of like, all people that I like. Yeah, Anna of the North, someone who really would still be just so ridiculously niche if it wasn't for her collaborations mm. with Tyler the Creator. And so it's funny that we did her before we did him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting album. I think it's got that sort of um really spacey quality that a lot of hip hop has at the moment. It reminds me of um kind of a Frank Ocean. I guess he gets a lot of comparisons to Frank Ocean, but also maybe to like Scissors EP mm. before her debut album. Yeah. Um, some of Scissors' like early kind of demos. It's kind of everywhere, so it's kind of silly for me to pick out those two people, but, but that kind of echoey, summery, slow, melodic kind of backdrop, a lot of the samples really fill that space yeah. on this record. Yeah, they're they're very melodic actually. That's a it's a really good word for it. It reminds me a lot of actually the we talked about this a while ago but that podcast about Kanye West dissect Mm. had a whole episode on like the history of sampling Mm. and it really went into detail about how like innovative Kanye was in sampling from old soul songs and then Mm. speeding them up or slowing them down and I feel like what Tyler's done on this album is 
sort of very informed by that because there's a lot of really interesting like vocal stuff in the background that's been taken from old songs yeah totally I really like how funny he is as well yes. a lot of it his is, lyrics are really funny um I I really like boredom which is the song with Anna of the North mm. but yeah there are kind of moments where he'll come in with something quite punchy and something quite controversial and something quite rebellious and you're a bit like whoa do I take this lyric seriously or not even because this is this album is kind of like almost considered to be like a coming out album Mm. right and even when he says something like how he's been it's it's it's, I'm paraphrasing but it's a lyric that's a bit like I've been kissing white boys since 2004 yeah it's kind of funny and silly and it comes I think it comes in I ain't got time where he's like talking about how he ain't got time for these hoes and these bitches. And then like, so he's like all this like crazy misogynistic bravado. And then it just is punctured by this like, oh, well, they'd be really surprised to know that I've been kissing white boys since 2004. I guess as Jonathan says, it's that kind of slightly playful element where you're like, wait, am I, do I take this seriously or not? And I had a few moments in in this album where I'd be like, oh, that's really funny. Oh, am I meant to be offended by that? Or is this a joke? Mm. Like, oh, is he being serious and like really woke and intersectional here or is he actually not being serious at all? I think the complexity of the album is kind of what's nice about it in lots of ways. Yeah. And I found it a really joyful listen, actually, a lot of, mm. for a lot of it. Yeah. Mm. So I think it's brilliant and I'm very glad to have been introduced to it. Yeah. Thanks so much. What a lovely recommendation. I feel like I see Tyler, the creator, always in like really beautiful editorials. Mm. He's always photographed so beautifully. And I've seen him photographed by people like Petra Collins in this very kind of like soft style that I really like. So he's a figure that holds some interest for me going (laughs) forward. Yeah. So what about next week? What are we going to do? So I have dipped back into the inbox which contains a lot of your brilliant suggestions for things that we should watch, listen to, do, etc. If you want to add to it, by the way, you can at seriouslypod at gmail.com. Feel free just to send us recommendations on how to live our life as well, because oh, yeah. mine's, mine's a mess. That would be great. Yeah, that would actually be really good. Um, but in this case, we're going to take a tip from Madison, who wrote in last month to recommend a few things, but particularly we're going to pick out Romans, which is a reality show from last year, she says, about men training and living as Roman gladiators. I just so remember the adverts for this really? and I so want to watch well, it. Well, yeah. apparently the girlfriends also come and have to compete in challenges. Um, I love that. <laughs> the girlfriends can also come. <laughs> so yeah, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, I think maybe my colleague Anish at the New Statesman wrote about this last summer and, you know, it was great and funny and I can't wait to watch this and maybe I'll find my summer crush in the process. Who maybe knows? you will. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com events. 
Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Oh, yeah. 